The Old Testament lesson for the second Sunday in Lent is from Genesis chapter 32. The same night, Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 15th chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. I'm too competitive to let my kids win at things. And I like to say that I am beating them in things because I want to teach them how to lose gracefully, but really it's just that I'm too competitive. I'm not cruel to them. I'll let the, the game be a game, but I'm not going to let them win. This is, at this point in my life, however, backfiring on me, because if I had been in the habit of letting them win at things, then I could chalk up my losses, my actual losses, as, oh, I just let you win again. And that's why I don't play chess with Teddy anymore, because he keeps on beating me. God is a better father than I am. He's a better father than I am. He is not competitive. He does not have a competitive spirit. He does not want to beat us. He wants us to win. He wants us to win in this wrestling match, like the wrestling match that Jacob had at the ford of the river Jabbok. Not a wrestling match of strength or of wit, but a wrestling match concerning faith and promises. If it were a wrestling match about strength, then all bets are off 
for Jacob. All God has to do is touch the socket of his hip, and the game is over. But this is a wrestling match about faith. God wants Jacob to prevail over him. God wants Jacob to defeat him by holding on to his promises, by trusting God's word. He wants, at the end of the day, for Jacob to say, Lord, you have no other option except to bless me because you said you would. God does not have a competitive spirit. He wants to wring out of us a victory. He wants to wring out of us faith. He wants to wrestle from us absolute 100% trust in his word and promises to get rid from our hearts every shred of trusting anything else, believing the devil's lies, believing the enticements of the world, believing the desires of our hearts. He wants us to listen and to trust in him alone. There is a game afoot. Now, it is not a game that has low stakes. It's not like it's played with Monopoly money or with chess pieces on a board. This is a game of life and death, but God knows, God knows that he must wrestle out of us faith. He must draw it out of us and strengthen it. He knows that it does not come naturally to us, and so he must give it to us and build it up. And that is exactly what he does. Now, this is the point at which it is very important to clear up a basic misunderstanding about faith. Faith is not an uncommon word in our world. It's thought of as a virtue, but it is misunderstood in lots of different ways. So three, here are three ways that faith is often misunderstood. Faith is often, in the first place, thought of as simply being optimistic, having high hopes for everything, believing that in the end everything is just going to work out by chance, or that on balance the universe has to give you more good things than bad things. It's just optimism. optimism. Have faith. Believe that your team will win even when they're down by quite a few scores in the last minutes of the fourth quarter. Believe. Just believe. That's what the world often thinks faith amounts to, basic optimism. Here's another misunderstanding of faith, and this is common among Christians. I've talked about this before, but it's worth repeating. The second misunderstanding is thinking that faith is simply knowing, knowing who Jesus is and what he did on the cross, knowing that Jesus died on the cross to forgive the sins of the world. The idea is that if you know that, if you can say those words, then you have faith, but that is also a misunderstanding. The third misunderstanding is this, and this is perhaps the worst, and it is also one of the most common among Christians, and that is thinking that faith is your commitment to Jesus. It is your promise to be with him. And that is why baptism often gets confused. Lots of churches think that baptism is about dedicating yourself to God, when in fact baptism is about God dedicating himself to you. Faith is not about what you do for God. It is not about you looking inside yourself for something, but it is instead you looking to God, to Jesus, for everything. Three ways that faith is misunderstood. And here's an example that I think illustrates well how this misunderstanding works, these misunderstandings. So imagine a father and a son. And the father instructs his son to climb a tree, which is something that dads often do and moms do not appreciate. But dad says, this is going to be good for you. Go, go, go ahead and climb that tree and shimmy your way out on that branch and, and go ahead and drop down from that branch and I will catch you. Sounds like a great, fun, trusting activity. The first misunderstanding of faith looks like this. The kid says to himself, great, I'll climb the tree and I'll shimmy out on the branch and I'll drop down because that always works out. Whether dad is there or not, 
Whether it's a high branch or a low branch, I'll just drop from it and everything will be okay because I'm optimistic. I believe. I believe I can fly. Maybe you've seen kids do that before, put on a cape and wings and believe they can fly. That's not faith. What does dad want from his son? He doesn't want his son to just be generally optimistic, to think that things are generally going to work out because, in fact, they do not. And he will be gravely disappointed and hurt and even worse if he thinks that things will just generally work out. What does the father want from his son? Not that kind of optimism. He wants his son to believe his words. Dad said he would catch me. And that's why I can drop down with confidence. Or consider the second misunderstanding, just knowing who Jesus is. So the kid shimmies into the tree and is out on the branch, and he looks down and he says, yep, that's my dad right there. And everybody else knows, yep, that's his dad. I know who that guy is, but he's not standing under the branch. He's not anywhere near the branch, and he didn't tell me to drop down, but I know who my dad is, and so I'm going to drop down right now. That's not putting confidence in what the Father said. It's just putting confidence in a fact, some knowledge. And in fact, any of those kids could say, yep, that, that's that kid's dad. Maybe I can drop out of the tree. But they don't have the promise. They don't have the assurance. That's not faith. It's just a bit of knowledge. It's just a fact. But where does that fact find its home? Here's the third misunderstanding, that faith is a commitment to God. It's our commitment to God. It's something that we do for him. So how does that look? So the kid shimmies up the tree and is out on the branch and he says, Dad, I'm going to drop from this branch and I'm going to hit the target because I'm really good at aiming when I drop out of this tree. That's how I know you're going to catch me. In fact, you don't have to do anything, Dad. I'm just going to land right on your shoulders and I'll take care of it all. That's not faith. That's not believing what the dad has promised. That's instead trusting in himself. That's thinking that he can control and create salvation, that he can save himself. The world misunderstands faith, and it's important that we as Christians understand what faith really is. Faith is very simple. It's very simple. Faith goes with promises. Faith receives promises. So whenever you think about faith, whenever you talk about faith, you also have to be talking about promises. Promises that have been made, promises that are reliable and trustworthy. So when the dad says, climb up that tree and shimmy out on that branch and I will catch you, that is a promise. The only question is not whether or not the dad looks ready to catch the kid, whether the dad looks strong enough to catch him, whether the kid can aim well when he drops down from the tree, whether anybody else knows who that dad is. The only thing that matters is, does dad mean what he says? Is dad's word good? Will he catch me? Faith believes the promises. It doesn't trust in the strength of its own arms, so that kid can be dangling from that branch, feeling weak and afraid, but he can say to himself, my dad promised, and so I can let go. My dad promised, and so he will catch me. I am sure of it. That's what faith does. It holds on to promises. This is where being a Christian is often a struggle because the world is full of all kinds of other words. Words of the devil, lies, that contradict what Jesus says, contradict his promises. The world is full of other promises that lead you to other things, del delights of the flesh, pleasures in this world, treasures that 
moth and rust can destroy. There's all kinds of words. So it's like being in that tree, hanging onto that branch, and your dad has said he will catch you, but then all of the neighbor kids are saying, why don't you swing around and do some gymnastics and then leap off the branch and see how that goes. Or they say, why don't you climb back to the tree and go up a little bit higher and then it will work out for you. So all kinds of other words in this world. There's all kinds of other words for you as Christians that you might listen to, that you might believe. And if you do, you will run into trouble because the only true and reliable words are the words of your Savior, the words that he has given to you, the promises he has given to you. So here's how this played out in Jacob's life. He was on the run. He had been on the run for a long time. He had to leave his home because his brother Esau wanted to kill him because Jacob was kind of a tricky fellow and had taken a blessing that Esau thought belonged to him. So Jacob went away and stayed with his uncle Laban for 20 years. And after 20 years, he had built a household for himself. He had 11 children. He had all kinds of animals. He had all kinds of wealth. And it was time to go home because things had soured between him and his uncle Laban. But he knew that going home was going to give him some trouble because Esau was there. 20 years ago, Esau was threatening to kill him. Has that murderous intention grown worse? Or has he forgotten about everything? Jacob doesn't know. So with Laban, his uncle Laban behind him, and Esau in front of him, Jacob finds himself at a river in the last day before he crosses to meet his brother Esau. He sends his whole family across, and he stays on one side of the river the night beforehand. And in the middle of the night, you heard it in our lesson, an angel came and wrestled with him. Or, as it turns out, God himself came and wrestled with him. Now, the night before, Jacob had prayed a prayer. This is what he said. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children, But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob prays a prayer before he wrestles with God. He prays a prayer and he reminds God of all his promises. You said that you would do me good. I'm afraid because my brother Esau is ahead of me. I'm afraid, but you said you would do me good, that you would bless me, that you would take care of me. You promised. And that is a good prayer. Remembering everything God had said, holding fast to his promises, acknowledging his unworthiness and his fear. But God wanted to make sure that those weren't just words that Jacob was mouthing, that he wasn't just paying lip service to the promises of God. And so in the middle of the night, the angel appeared, God himself appeared, and wrestled with Jacob. Jacob thought his enemy was Esau. He thought his enemy was his uncle Laban. But it turns out in the middle of that night, God himself appears to be Jacob's enemy. What is Jacob going to do? Is he going to believe the promises still? Is he going to hold fast to what God said to him? Is he going to trust that God will do him good? And in the middle of the night as he wrestled, God cheated, touched the hip socket of Jacob's leg and put it out of joint. So that Jacob could not prevail by strength. He couldn't beat God with his might, with his muscles. And he couldn't beat God with his wit. But he could beat God in this way, with his faith. Lord, you said you would bless me. Now you're trying to kill me. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. 
until you give me what you said you would. God blesses Jacob and says, I'm changing your name to Israel. You have striven with God and with man. You've wrestled with God and with man, and you have prevailed. Not because you're mighty, not because you're smart or clever, not because you know all kinds of things, not because you're just generically optimistic, not because of your commitment to doing things right, but because you listened and you believed. You heard my words and you held me to them. You took my promises seriously. You trusted them. God wrestled out of Jacob this display of faith, and God kept his promises. His promises wouldn't have done Jacob any good if he hadn't believed them. That's the thing about promises. They don't do you any good if you don't believe them. The son who doesn't believe that his father's going to catch them is going to remain hanging in that tree forever. But if he believes his father's word, then everything will be okay. If he believes what has been promised to him, then everything will be okay. And that's the lesson for you and for me today. Now, sometimes the way that God teaches us this lesson is brutal. He plays rough. He puts us through our courses. He puts us to the test in ways that we would rather not be tested. He takes that poor Canaanite woman who is begging for mercy, and he ignores her, and then he refuses her, and then he calls her a dog. Seems cruel. Seems like torture. But what is Jesus doing? He wants her to believe his words only and not anything else. His promises only. He wants her to believe in the goodness of God for her sake and nothing else. Not what she feels, not how she reacts, not the world around you, not what anyone else might say. He wants her to believe him. And she does. Lord, have mercy. And he gives her exactly what he promised. He blesses her and gives the reward of her faith, the deliverance, the fulfillment of everything that he promised to her. That's the way God handles us. So I may not be a very good father because I never let my kids win, but God is very rough with us. He's rough with us in a way that I don't think any of us could ever be with one another, but why does God do it? It's because his love for us is far greater than our love is for our children or for one another. God loves us so that he's willing to do what it takes to teach us to trust in him. He's willing to do what it takes to draw out of our hearts what he has put into, there, into them, to draw out of our hearts faith in his word and promises. So when you look at your life, when you look at the things you encounter, when you look at the things you struggle with, the times that you are prompted to pray and to cry out for God, to God for mercy, remember. Remember what God is doing for you and to you. He's not some sort of a cosmic vending machine where if you pray and you just push the right buttons and put in the right cash, out comes what you asked for. But he's a father who wants to teach you to trust in him through everything. He's a father who wants you to listen to his words and his words alone. So fill your ears with his words and his words alone. Don't listen to the devil. Don't listen to the world. Don't listen to your flesh. Listen to him. So that when the going gets tough, when he plays rough with you, when he's wrestling with you, you can believe that is for your good. You can believe so that, that it is so you will trust in his promises and receive what he has promised you. So that you can believe against all odds. You can believe things that are not seen. Things that are impossible. Things that God only can give to you. Things like the forgiveness of sins. The resurrection of the dead. And life everlasting. There's going to come a day for every one of us when those things seem impossible. 
In the meantime, God is teaching us to trust in him. So that when at long last your eyes are closing in death and you're breathing your last, you will not say, I don't know what to do. I don't know where my hope is. Where are the promises now? Instead, you'll say, like this woman said, like Jacob said, Lord, you have promised. You've promised to bless me. Keep your promises now. To God alone be all glory now and forever. Amen.